0: This podcast instalment contains references to child sex offences. Listener discretion is advised. It's Saturday night, the 9th of May, 1981, just a week and a bit since Greg McCarty was ordered to stand trial for the Woolworths bombings. In his cell in Long Bay Jail Remand, he might be imagining where he'll be this time next week. Maybe somewhere warm, a beach and surface paradise, or a pub in the Queensland outback. Anywhere but here in this cold grey prison. Greg McHardy can be an affable bloke, and the crimes he's accused of are ballsy enough to command respect, just like his solid 184cm build, and his reputed heavy connections on the outside. So, the accused Woolworths bomber has made a few mates in remand. Boys like him, who are on serious charges, and not overly keen on standing trial. Greg and six of these blokes have an escape plan, but then again, who doesn't? What sets them apart, though, is they've got outside men who are tooling up to make it happen. Next Thursday, the 15th of May, some of these crooks are going to come to Long Bay as visitors. They'll bring with them bags of clothes, which Remand prisoners are allowed because they're not required to wear jail uniforms. In these bags, the outside men will also have sawn-off automatic rifles, and once inside the visitor centre, they'll pull these out and order the guards to drop their revolvers. If the subdued guards are smart, if they do what they're told, they and other prisoners and visitors won't be hurt. Greg and his crew will do a quick clothing change and exit looking like departing visitors. But if the guards aren't smart, or if some mug tries to be a hero, then Greg and the gang might have to shoot their way out to the getaway car. However it goes down, Greg McHarty is getting out. Five more nights and he'll be free. This might be a comforting thought as he goes to sleep this Saturday night. What Greg McHarty doesn't know is that he's not going to have to wait five days to be free of Long Bay Jail. He'll be out in about five hours. A couple of hours before first light the next morning, Sunday the 10th of May, a group of screws take Greg from his cell and bundle him into a van. By 5 o'clock, they're on the road under heavy armed police escort. The vehicle heads through the city, crosses the harbour bridge, and then continues north up the coast before cutting inland to Greg McHardy's new temporary home Maitland Jail, just a couple of kilometres from the Maitland Woolworth store that he and Larry Danielson allegedly blew up 18 months ago. As for Greg McHarty's six would-be Long Bay escapee mates, they're similarly being dispersed this Sunday morning to other maximum security prisons around New South Wales. Based on intelligence provided by prison snitches, the combined corrections and police operation has been carried out in the darkness and under strict secrecy. It's not until a week later that Sydneyside is awake to the Sun Herald's front page blaring, breakout plot foiled at Long Bay, move averts gun battle. The exclusive article names Greg McHarty as one of the ringleaders. Long Bay Jail prison security officer, Superintendent Ron Woodham, tells the paper, quote, If guns were fired and a commotion started in the visitor's room, they probably would have sprinted the 300 yards to the outside perimeter wall on the other side of Katingle, where they would have had cars waiting. I've got no doubt that if we hadn't nipped it in the bud like that, there could have been dead or wounded people at the Remand Centre office this week. By the time Sun Herald readers are taking this in over their cornflakes and coffee, Greg McHarty has already been transferred to a new location. Parramatta Jail. Maximum security with eight armed guards manning towers along the high sandstone walls. But blokes have actually made it out. For instance, back in the day, 1971, Crooks Les Shepherd and Ray Hoare escaped in a screws car, only to crash it and be recaptured in nearby Maryland's. More recently, a big attempt saw seven prisoners dig a tunnel for 10 months during late 1978 and into 1979. Their plan was to emerge in the linen service attached to the jail, from which escape would be far easier. But just hours before they were about to break out, one of the prisoners called his grandma to say, See you on Sunday. Thinking her boy was about to be released, Gran called the jail to confirm the details. This doofus's utter stupidity led to the tunnel being found and the escape being all over Red Rover. Far less complicated and far funnier was the prisoner who got out simply by hiding himself in a bread truck. When the vehicle stopped, the jailbird leapt to freedom. Maybe he thought that for a second before nearly landing on a guard and discovering the van's next call had been inside Silverwater Jail. No doubt Greg McHarty absorbs these Parramatta prison stories soon after his transfer, and no doubt he hears Screw saying that escape is virtually impossible. Greg McHarty will see about that. He's going to get out, or die trying. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part 7 of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The trial of Larry Danielson and Greg McHardy got going in the District Court of New South Wales before Justice Muir on the 22nd of March, 1982. That was 14 months after they'd been arrested. Each man faced four charges, the three Woolworths bombings and demanding that $1 million ransom with menaces. They both entered pleas of not guilty. The single-spaced, typewritten trial transcript, a copy of which is at the New South Wales State Archives, runs to more than 850 pages. A lot of what's in those dense paragraphs has provided the basis for this episode, so to avoid too much repetition, I'll recap the most important witnesses and cross-examinations with a few notes of my own. First to testify was security guard Trevor Green, who recounted the lead-up to the Warrilla Explosion. During this bloke's testimony, Larry Danielson and Greg McHardy got off to a bad start by sharing a laugh and mugging at each other. Justice Muir wasn't having it, and he gave them a reprimand. After lunch, taxi operator Pat Henshaw told of the Maitland bombing. Woolworth's secretary, Leonie McKinlay, described getting that phone call saying the $1 million ransom letter had been dropped off and that phone call two days later on Christmas Eve when Mr. Dunmore said a bomb would go off in the town hall store in 10 minutes. Woolworth's general manager, Tony Harding, testified later that afternoon about the contents of the letter, which had promised a daylight bombing confirming that the company had known of the threat but complied with the extortionist's demand and the police's advice to keep everything quiet. Leonie and Tony both testified about their experiences of the town hall bombing, as did Constable Alan Duncan, whose recollections as first responder we heard in the bonus instalment. Tony Harding also testified about Mr Dunmore's later calls and the company and police's efforts to record them. John Hendry, Woolworths Director of Corporate Relations, testified for two days. He said he'd been the last person out of the town hall building seconds before it exploded. John explained how he'd become the point man for dealing with the accented Mr. Dunmore and on the day of the ransom, the very different sounding Mr. Bridge. As it would throughout the trial, the defence paid particular attention to the recordings that had been made by John Hendry of these bomber extortionists. The defence wanted to know the type of recording equipment used, how the decision to use it had been made, and how it had been installed by telecom under police authority. The defence would argue that the calls had been illegally recorded under the provisions of the Telecommunications Interceptions Act, which stipulated that a party to a conversation had to be informed it was being recorded. Justice Muir was to rule the tapes admissible, and the jury would hear them many times. So the court was able to hear John Hendry talking to Mr. Dunmore about the ransom preparations and to Mr. Bridge about the ransom pickup on the afternoon of the 12th of January. John was asked by Mr. Pritchard, Larry Danielson's defense lawyer, whether he now recognized his client in court as resembling any of the identikit photos he'd been shown by police in the wake of the bombing. John said no. Throughout the trial, most witnesses, including the police, would say the same thing, that the composite images released to the public bore no resemblance to either of the accused. No one had seen a suspect at Worilla or at Maitland, and Iris Simpkins was the closest the Crown had to a witness who said she'd seen one of the bombers. Iris was the Woolworth shop assistant who'd supposedly spotted a suspicious-looking man or men in the Town Hall store on the late morning of Christmas Eve, and then again just before the bomb evacuation and explosion. Iris was not a convincing witness. She told the court she'd never forget the man's face that day in the store because he'd scared the hell out of her, and she said she was absolutely certain that that man was Larry Danielson, now sitting just across the court from her. In her first police interview on the 26th of December, Iris had said that one of the identikit images had looked like this suspicious man. She described him as having a full beard, receding hairline but shoulder-length hair, and said he was about 5'3 and 14 stone. This actually didn't fit with any of the identikit images. As the court was to hear from numerous witnesses, Larry Danielson was always clean-shaven. Granted, he could have been wearing a disguise, but if he'd looked so different that day, how could Iris be so sure now of the clean-shaven fellow across from her in the court, especially as it was 16 months later? Iris remained adamant. Her evidence was harder to credit because her later police statement, dated the 5th of February, hadn't made any reference to the suspicious man whose face she'd never forget because he'd scared her so much. Adding to the difficulty with her evidence was that this statement hadn't been signed by the officers who'd taken it. Iris Simpkins' testimony had so many inconsistencies that Justice Muir would later seriously warn the jury about taking any of it into consideration. The court heard from the observation squad officers who said they'd seen Greg McCarty at the Rose Bay Hotel on the day of the ransom pickup, and the court also heard from various officers about the retrieval of the ransom from the harbour after Greg's arrest. Senior Constable Frank Buffoni testified about the Taronga Park Wharf stakeout and the moment he'd seen Greg in the scuba gear. Detective Sergeant John Openshaw took the stand on Thursday the 25th of March and his testimony was to take two days. The prosecution's questions elicited Detective Openshaw's version of his first two interrogations of Greg McCarty. We've heard much of this material in parts three and four of this episode. This is the version where Greg first claimed he was Greg Newman and told a tall tale about being hired in Queensland for a hundred grand and hitchhiking down to Sydney with his scuba tanks a few days before the ransom pickup. Then he'd started talking about Benny, but said nothing of Larry Danielson or his old boss, alleged organized crime figure, Bob Evans. In Detective Openshaw's version, Greg in his second interview fessed up to Benny being BS and said he couldn't name names or he was dead meat. As noted previously, Detective Openshaw was unable to present typewritten records of these interviews, claiming that Greg had refused permission for them to be made, just as he'd waived his right to legal counsel. So, all of Detective Openshaw's testimony was based on his recollections and here's where accusations of verbaling were easy for Greg's lawyer, Mr Keogh, to make. In addition to claiming that Greg McHarty hadn't been cautioned or allowed a lawyer, Mr Keogh said that most everything Detective Openshaw said, Greg had said, had in fact not been said. Detective Openshaw said it had all been said, just as he'd said. Mr Keogh put Greg McHarty's version of the interviews to the detective in question after question. Here's an example. Mr. Keogh, I put it to you that you then said this to him, Greg, where did you first meet Larry Danielson? And he said, I met him at my boss's place, John Horriban in Huskisson. They are friends. Detective Openshaw's response, never said that to me. Mr. Keogh, you then said to him, what does Larry do for a living? McCarty said, he's a singer. What do you say to that? Detective Openshaw, that conversation was never had. Mr. Keogh, I put it to you that you then said to him, where does he sing? And McCarty said, at the local clubs in that area. What do you say to that? Detective Openshaw, that was never said. Detective Openshaw's next three consecutive answers were, never said that, that conversation was never had, and that was never said. These were in response to Mr. Keogh's claims that Greg had told him about where he'd been living in Townsville, how he'd run a hotel there with his wife, and then how he'd been in Melbourne trying to set up his video business. Mr. Keogh claimed that in his interview, Greg had said he was just a courier and that he had no idea of what he was collecting. Greg had said he'd been offered $10,000, not $100,000, with this relative pittance backing up his claims that he was just a bagman. man. Mr. Keogh claimed his client had immediately told police his real name and said he'd been stopping with Larry Danielson after initially staying at Bob Evans' place when he arrived in Huskisson. Basically, Greg, without ratting anyone out, had simply told police what they were going to find out anyway about his recent movements. Detective Openshaw denied all of this had been said by Greg in his first and second interviews. Detective Openshaw said in court that he hadn't talked to other detectives about the evidence he was giving, precisely because he was well aware of accusations that police rehearsed their stories. Yet, when his partner, Detective Sergeant Norm Hazard, and task force boss, Detective Sergeant John Anderson, were to give corroborative testimony, they backed everything he'd said, and in some places, it was pretty much word for word. Side note and flash forward. When it began in 1995, the Wood Royal Commission into the New South Wales Police Force learned the lexicon that the state's cops had used to describe activities that were dubious and sometimes criminal. One of these was the Scrumdown, where officers met to coordinate their stories, so no copper came a cropper in court. Getting a story straight, this wasn't illegal, but fabricating testimony was. And that was what Mr Keogh was trying to get the jury to believe had happened to Greg McHardy. Detective Sergeants Openshaw, Hazard and Anderson would all stay staunch in their statements. And there's no proof that these detectives stitched up Greg McHardy. It was, they said, he said. They being three upstanding officers of the law. He being the scuba scumbag caught red-handed with a bomber's ransom. But... As previously noted, changes to the law to protect against Verbling means that the testimony from these three detectives would not be admissible today unless accompanied by an official record of interview or independent corroboration. Detective Openshaw was one of the Crown's star witnesses, and he was convincing. Forty years later, though, it's hard to separate this from the man's future, which included disgrace for his association with Nettie Smith alleged partner in drug dealing with Bob Evans, and a jail term for a brothel bribery scheme. The court heard from Detective Sergeant Colin Holden about how he'd traced the scuba gear that Greg had been caught wearing in the harbour. He said he'd gone to see Rick Poole at his Coogee dive store at 3.30 in the afternoon on the 14th of January. Rick consulted paper records that revealed the gear had come from the Sea Life store in Huskisson. Detective Sergeant Holden testified that Rick had told him, quote, certain things about the equipment. Presumably, this was a reference to it having been stolen in mid-October. But it might have gone further than that. Rick Poole told me recently that he'd said to the police who interviewed him that day, Larry Danielson, he's your man. Rick said he wasn't sure why he said that. It was just a feeling he had. Yet, Detective Sergeant Holden testified that it hadn't been until the 20th of January, the same day that Larry was first interviewed, that he'd gone down to the Sea Life store in Huskisson to confirm that the gear had been stolen. Detective Sergeant Holden also testified about the discovery of the underwater propulsion unit the Crown wanted the jury to believe that Larry had stolen from the Dive Trek store in Rushcutters Bay. The court heard from Rick Poole, owner of the Sea Life store, who said he'd employed Larry at the Sea Life lodge from April to August 1980 and had bought the tumble-down Dicks property with him. While Rick said he'd let Larry go, he didn't mention anything about the man having appropriated money and he didn't say that he'd claimed to the police that he thought Larry was involved in the Woolworths bombings. On the 30th of March, Detective Sergeant Des Johnson testified about interviewing Larry Danielson first formally at Nowra Police Station, then less formally at the Huskisson Caravan Park, and then really informally over drinks at Larry's house. Detective Sergeant Johnson denied being drunk or making threats or saying police knew that Bob Evans was involved, and he told how back in Sydney he'd realised that Larry's voice was on the Mr Bridge tapes and then recorded Larry in that phone call the following day. While Detective Johnson said in court that he'd been friendly with Larry and a regular at Flix in Manly, though he wasn't on the licensing squad, there was no further questioning about this relationship. Detective Sergeant Johnson told the court that he'd been assigned to the hunt for the Woolworths bomber on the 16th of January. Just four days later, he was the investigator sitting opposite his old acquaintance Larry Danielson and soon after identifying him as the chief suspect. Unless it was simply a coincidence, which is possible, Detective Sergeant Johnson being put on the case on the 16th of January suggests that police had Larry in their sights by this time. They knew Detective Sergeant Johnson could be valuable to the task force because he knew the bloke. So, given that Detective Sergeant Colin Holden didn't get down to Huskisson until the 20th of January to investigate the store break-in, how did police know about Larry? Was it via Rick Poole's comment that was based on a feeling? Possibly. Another simple answer was that Greg McCarty had told Detective Openshaw about Larry in his first interview, as his defence lawyer, Mr Keogh, had claimed. If Larry was identified at least by the 16th of January as a person of interest, this would also align with the Daily Telegraph's later front page claim that Huskisson had been under police surveillance from around this time. These questions were important because police didn't need to caution witnesses. But by law, they had to caution suspects. So when had Larry officially become a suspect? During his testimony, Detective Sergeant Johnson maintained that even as he was about to press play on the Mr. Bridge tapes on the 22nd of January, after interviewing Larry three times, including that chat over drinks, he still viewed Larry as no more of a suspect than anyone else in Huskisson. After hearing the Mr. Bridge tapes, Coming to the belief that Larry was Mr. Bridge and getting authorization from Detective Sergeant John Anderson to record Larry's already conveniently arranged phone call the next morning, Detective Sergeant Johnson testified that he still hadn't felt the need to caution Larry or advise him the call was being recorded. Detective Sergeant Johnson could hardly claim that he'd done either because he was right there on the recordings with Larry. And repeatedly on these tapes, Larry was saying that he hadn't wanted to sign that bloody statement because he wasn't sure of the dates, with Detective Sergeant Johnson heard admitting that he should have given Larry a copy of the statement so he could have checked them. Scientific Squad Detective Sergeant John Barber testified about the case's other tapes, the blue insulation tapes. He described finding the tape offcuts in the Woolworths toilet after the town hall blast, and said that the police photographer had documented this discovery, though he didn't know what had become of those pictures. Detective Sergeant Barber showed the court two bits of tape mounted side by side. One was from Woolworths and the other from the roll at Larry's house, and it was clear to even the layperson their respective cut ends were a perfect fit. The tape end from the other roll matched the tape in the underwater scooter. So the blue insulation tapes matched, It was just a matter of proving beyond doubt that they belonged to Larry and or Greg. Larry Danielson hadn't been questioned about the blue tape rolls found at his house on the day of his arrest because Detective Sergeant Barber, after going to see Detective Sergeant John Anderson at Nowra Police Station, had been directed to take them to Sydney with other evidence for analysis. Why hadn't Larry been shown the roles by Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall during his interrogation and asked whether they were his, just the same as the Gregory's Directory, the contact book and that notebook? This would be a question for Task Force boss, Detective Sergeant John Anderson. The court heard from Detective Sergeant Barber that no fingerprints had been returned from any of the insulation tapes discovered, with him saying this wasn't necessarily unusual because it was a medium that stretched and scrunched. Detective Sergeant Norm Hazard offered corroboration of Detective Sergeant Openshaw's testimony about the interrogations of Greg McCarty and, under cross-examination, the whole verbaling they said, he said back and forth played out once more. Detective Sergeant Hazard, like Detective Openshaw, described Greg's claims about the mysterious Benny and described how he and his partner had made what sounded like fairly cursory searches of the man's supposedly known Kings Cross haunts. The search for Benny, at least in the media, had been a massive police operation. Greg's defence, though, was that he'd never said anything about a Benny. If, if that was the case, then why did the police put it out there? Floating such a story, supposedly coming from the accused, would actually be a pretty smart move. It might lull their real suspect, Larry Danielson, into a false sense of security while the police put surveillance in place, got Detective Sergeant Des Johnson on board, and built their case. Another possibility was that Detective Sergeants Openshore and Hazard were telling the truth about what Greg had said about Benny, but in court downplayed the search in order to minimise their embarrassment at having chased their tails for the better part of two weeks. When Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall took the stand, at least he was able to substantiate some of his interview with Larry Danielson with a typewritten record. Excerpts were tendered, including that Larry had initially said he didn't know where he'd been on the 17th and 19th of December, and that he claimed to never have been to the Highway Hotel at Wentworthville. As we've heard, the defence argued that not all of the nearly four hours of interview had been faithfully recorded in a record of interview that totaled just four pages. The defence also argued that Larry's identification of Greg's handwriting had, during interview, been prompted by detectives. Mr. Pritchard said that Larry had had the Highway Hotel number in his contact book because he'd gone out there in late 1977 to check it out as an entertainment venue as a favour to a friend, and Larry could back this up by producing his diary from this time. As for those notes in Larry's handwriting about the Midnight Special... This had been Larry jotting down from his faulty memory what Detective Sergeant Johnson had told him about the bombings. These notes, the defence argued, actually proved that Larry wasn't the bomber because he didn't get the details right. He'd listed the number one bombing, the midnight special No Warning, as being at Newcastle. The first bombing, of course, had been at Worilla, and the second bombing had been at Maitland, not Newcastle. The town hall bombing, which Larry had noted was a daylight special with warning, had actually been the third explosion, though he'd listed it as number two and left number three blank. Why would the bomber get these details wrong? Mr. Pritchard said that other evidence was missing. This was a page from the notebook in which Larry had done similar to what Detective Sergeant Johnson had suggested about writing down dates. What he'd done instead was write down the arguments for and against Greg McHardy, his houseguest, being involved in the Woolworths bombings. Police accounts in court of what Larry had told them of his movements in December and January made his chronology very inconsistent. And for Larry, much was to depend on proving where he'd been on those dates. Where he'd been when the Warrilla and Maitland stores had been bombed where he'd been when the ransom letter was dropped at Woolworths Town Hall and when it blew up two days later on Christmas Eve, where he'd been on the 7th and 8th of January when the underwater scooter was stolen from the Dive Trek store in Rushcutters Bay, and where he'd been four days later when the ransom runaround and pickup had gone down. Continuing his testimony, Detective Sergeant Tunstall said that on the 9th of February, he'd gone to the central court area near the cells to see Larry in order to ask more questions, including questions about the blue insulation tape. Larry that day, like Greg McCarty, had refused on legal advice to answer any further inquiries. After that day's hearing on the 9th of February though, Larry had asked Detective Sergeant Tunstall to come and see him at Long Bay Jail and when the detective did a week later, Larry had made his claims about the mystery man that Greg McCarty had supposedly been talking to in remand. Detective Sergeant Tunstall hadn't believed him and so hadn't followed up. John Horriban testified to say that he thought he'd been the one to introduce Larry and Greg though he told me recently he later learned via the police that they'd met earlier, probably in Queensland some months before. John Horriban listened to the Woolworths recordings in court and said that Mr Dunmore sounded like Greg while Mr Bridge sounded like Larry. He was particularly struck by how Mr Dunmore often said the words beautiful and fine, which were words that Greg McCarty used a lot in conversation. John Horriban testified he'd been drinking at the Huskisson Bowling Club on Christmas Eve and he'd seen Larry and Greg there. It wasn't like you could miss Larry that night. While he'd usually been in a tracksuit, on Christmas Eve he was debuting his garish new blue safari suit and people, including John Horriban, were taking the piss out of him for it. But according to John, safari suit Larry had only been at the club with Greg from about 7pm. With the town hall bomb exploding at 3:25 that afternoon in Sydney, Larry and Greg would have had plenty of time to drive back to Huskisson. Yet Larry's claim was that he'd been in Huskisson and Nowra all day and had been at the bowls club with Greg from about five, so not enough time to blow up a Woolies and drive back. Further, Larry said that his safari suit proved his innocence. That was because he'd picked it up from Fosse's in Nowra on the afternoon of Christmas Eve. Larry had put a deposit on the safari suit three weeks earlier and had been waiting for the trousers to be altered. He'd gone back once and paid the balance, but the trousers weren't ready, so he'd said he'd come back, which he did on Christmas Eve. That meant that the worst crime Larry was guilty of was a crime against fashion. Other Huskisson Bowls Club witnesses said that Larry and Greg had been there on Christmas Eve, but most said they'd only seen them from about seven. The bar manager said he'd seen them sometime after five, which wasn't a lot of help. Local milkman Ross Dickinson's testimony was far more specific. Originally from Mossman in Sydney, he'd known Larry a couple of months by December 1980, and he'd met Greg at one of Larry's shows at the golf club in the middle of that month. While Larry was playing, Ross and Greg had talked about the explosions that could then be heard locally, rumbling from where a new pipeline was being laid. Ross and Greg then talked about fishing. Always a go-to conversation around Huskisson. Next time they saw each other, maybe a few days later, they talked about fishing again. Greg said the fish weren't biting, so maybe it'd be a good idea to use explosives to blow them up. Turned out Ross knew a little bit about explosives, so Greg asked him what sort of battery you'd need to set off a charge. Ross said it could be done with a 1.5 amp, but you'd be better off with a 12 amp. Then Greg asked him where you'd go about getting detonators. Ross said you could buy them in Nowra. As far as testimony went, this was pretty damning stuff. But then came this exchange. The Crown Prosecutor asked, quote, "'Can you recall what you were doing on Christmas Eve, 1980?' Ross Dickinson answered, "'Delivering milk. That was in the afternoon.' "'Did you see either of the accused, Danielson or McCarty, on Christmas Eve?' "'Yes.' "'Whereabouts?' "'At the bowling club.' What time was that? It would have been around 25 past four. It would have been about half past four. You said at the bowling club. Whereabouts? In the car park. Where were you? Over at the service station. Just finished loading some ice. Just about to pull out. Who did you see? One or both of them? Both of them. During questioning by the prosecution and then under cross-examination from both Mr. Pritchard and Mr. Keogh, Ross Dickinson told the court that Larry had been in that blue safari suit and that he'd been clean-shaven. Ross had waved and said he'd see them later for a drink. Ross did see them, around 7.30 in the club, and he also saw John Horriban, who he said was visibly drunk and yahooing as usual. Cross-examination around this tried to undermine John Horriban's credibility about only seeing Larry and Greg after 7pm on Christmas Eve. Ross's testimony continued to say that in January he'd seen a fair bit of Larry and also Greg when he was around. This included going to the Huskisson house on the night of Friday the 10th of January. He'd been talking to Larry and Greg when Larry had excused himself saying he was going to have a bath. While he was gone, Greg asked Ross for some advice on how to get to Taronga Zoo. That was because he wanted to take his daughter there when she visited. Ross, originally from Mossman, was only too happy to help. He said it'd be best to get a ferry, but Greg said his kid wanted to drive across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. To help Ross explain, Greg got out a Gregory Street Directory. Ross explained to the court that he'd been the one to make the pen marks on the Toronga Park map page when he'd been telling Greg that he used to fish there for John Dory and also see dolphins frolicking in the harbour. Ross Dickinson also told the court he'd recommended that Greg check out a pub at Mossman called the Buana Vista because it was run by an ex-boxer from Queensland who he thought that Greg, being from Queensland, might know. Ross's testimony had alibied both men and also explained the Gregory's. He'd also given a reason for why Greg McCarty might have the Buena Vista Hotel on his mind. Even if the defence had not yet explained away the detailed ransom instructions allegedly found in Greg's handwriting. The problem with Ross Dickinson's testimony about his night at the Huskisson house was that Friday had been the 9th and not the 10th of January. On Friday the 9th of January at 11.43pm, as the court would hear from the highway patrolman involved, Larry Danielson had been booked on the Princess Highway for a traffic infringement while travelling south at Sylvania. After getting his fine and even telling the officer he'd been having a bad day, Larry had continued south in his green Ford Falcon, whose license plates actually belonged to an older mustard-coloured Falcon that he owned. Not that the officer noticed this, as both were XD models. And John Horriban's wife, Robin, had testified that Larry had gone to their place at 10am on Saturday the 10th of January, looking agitated and washed out. She thought he'd been on a booze bender, but Larry had said he'd just driven all the way back from surfers. Robin worried whether he'd be able to play the club that night as scheduled, but Larry had been just fine, ever the popular entertainer. The thing was, though... Mossman man turned milkman Ross Dickinson's evidence about chatting with Larry on Friday the 9th or Saturday the 10th just couldn't be true. With that in mind, how much of the rest of what he'd said to support his mates could be believed. As for the traffic ticket and those two Ford Falcon XDs, the Crown's assertion was that Larry had been booked on his way back to Huskisson from Sydney after that abortive initial attempt to organise the ransom pickup with Woolworths, hence his comment to the cop about having a bad day. And that green Ford Falcon XD hadn't been seen since the 12th of January, though the license plates had been returned to their rightful place on the older model. Not that the court heard this, but Detective Sergeant John Anderson would later write that police believed Larry had sunk the green Falcon somewhere, likely filled with incriminating evidence that included Greg's possessions and, possibly, those missing, never-to-be-found, hundreds of sticks of gelignite. Another witness, Robert Manning, might have done Greg's ego some good, but he certainly didn't help his defense case. Robert had been a drinking buddy of Greg's since early December, and he'd taken a shine to the man because he could bask in the reflected glow. He told the court, quote, Greg was very popular. He was a beaut fellow to talk to because he always had some good-looking birds hanging around him. One night drinking and smoking dope, with three such beauties they were trying to impress, Greg and Robert told a lot of jokes. Greg did some of his in a European-style accent. In court, Robert Manning recounted an interview he'd done with Detective Sergeant Desmond Johnson, who'd played him a Mr. Dunmore tape and asked, Does that voice sound familiar? Robert had laughed and said, As a matter of fact, it sounds like the voice I heard Greg tell a joke in. Detective Sergeant Johnson played the tape again. Robert told the court, The second time he played it, I stopped laughing because I thought at the time it was Greg. I hoped it wasn't. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right! We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Circumstantial evidence against Larry Danielson mounted with testimony from a friend named Sean Library, who'd worked with him at the Sea Life Lodge. She told the court that Larry had bought a puppy for his son in mid-December and asked her to look after it while he went away for a few days. Larry, she said, had called her on the 17th of December to ask if she could keep the dog a bit longer, that he'd be back from Sydney on the afternoon of the 19th. So, according to Sean Library's testimony, on the dates of the Warilla and Maitland bombings, Larry had been out of Huskisson. Things didn't get better when Annie Callan testified. Annie said she'd met Larry in mid-1980 in Huskisson. They'd talked and during the conversation she'd mentioned that she worked in the dive trek store at Rushcutters Bay. On the afternoon of the 7th of January 1981, having not seen Larry since, Annie was surprised when he came into the store to have a diving cylinder filled. Larry said that he and a mate were in Sydney to do some maintenance on a boat. Annie said she was having a dinner party that night and would he like to come along. Larry said he would, and he got to her place in Paddington around 7.30. Four hours later, one of Annie's friends needed a lift home across the bridge, so Larry and Annie took her in his green falcon. On his way back though, Larry took a route that was out of the way, but which saw him drive right by the Dive Trek store in Rushcutters Bay. After getting back to Annie's place at around 1, Larry around 3 said he had to go because he had a lot of work to do the next morning on that boat. Some six hours later, when Annie rocked up to work at Dive Trek, she found the store had been broken into and an underwater scooter, along with some diving gear, had been stolen. If Larry had done this, he was a cool customer because he called Annie at the store at around lunchtime and they went out again that afternoon for a drink. In court, Annie Calland, like the store's owner, Richard Swansborough, couldn't say for sure that the underwater scooter in evidence was the same one that had been stolen from the store. But both said they sure looked very similar. The Crown's chronology of Larry Danielson's circumstantially suspicious movements continued when his friend Colin Fisk took the stand. Colin told the court he'd met Larry through flicks around October of 1979. He'd see him about once a week over the next six months until the club failed and Larry split from Diana and moved to Huskisson. Colin had been down there to see Larry three times, he said between October and December. On one of these occasions, he'd gone into Tumbledown Dicks when no one was home and on top of the fridge had seen what looked like the innards of a clock. During these visits, he also saw scuba gear, including tanks that he said had been painted. Larry had also popped into Colin Fisk's place at Seaforth in October 1980. On this visit, he said he had some tanks left over from the Sea Life Lodge that he wanted to sell. He asked Colin for help with this, even though Colin knew very little to nothing about diving. Colin Fisk said that Larry had come to his place in Seaforth twice in December, once about a week and a half before Christmas, and the second time in the company of Greg McCarty about a week before Christmas. Colin admitted the dates of these visits were approximate, but he knew they'd been sometime in December. On the first visit, Larry had said he was going north to get the marquee because, yet again, he was talking about putting on music events with that megatent he'd been banging on about for so long. On the second visit, the one with Greg McCarty, Larry said they were heading up north to check out a boat they were thinking of buying. The insinuation was that this time they had actually been on their way to Maitland and were laying down a cover story. Colin Fisk said that over the course of the various visits, Larry had claimed that the brother he hadn't seen for many many years was coming over from New Zealand at Christmas to discuss an inheritance because their mother had died sometime previously. Marquees, boat deals and surprise inheritances, classic Larry Danielson. Always dreamin' and schemin' about getting paid. When he was played the Mr. Bridge tapes in court, Colin Fisk said he thought they sounded like Larry. In his testimony, Colin wasn't great with dates. He was out by two months when he said Larry had moved south in June, when it had actually been April. Similarly, his account of meeting Greg in Huskisson at the end of November was also out by a month, with other convincing evidence pointing to this being early January. As for Larry telling him about an inheritance, this was meant to suggest Larry had been laying the groundwork for sudden wealth he'd have after getting the Woolworth's ransom. But why would Larry save this cover story exclusively for Colin Fisk? He hadn't put this story out to his Huskisson cronies, who surely would be the first to notice if Larry suddenly started getting around in a sports car. And why would Larry lay down the inheritance story when his mother was very much alive, which police could easily establish with a single phone call? As we've heard, Larry Danielson did tell a lot of yarns, so he could well have said some or even all of these things to Colin Fisk. But there's no doubting they were convenient for the Crown to place Larry with those painted scuba tanks on the road to Maitland with Greg around the time of the bombing and supposedly anticipating a large financial windfall. What about those clock innards which were clearly meant to suggest bomb-making activity at Huskisson? Colin was to admit in court that he'd since learned this suspicious-looking gizmo was nothing more than a toy that belonged to Chris, Larry's son. The defence cross-examination by Larry's counsel, Mr Pritchard, focused on where Colin Fisk had lived when, in an attempt to poke holes in his chronology. There wasn't much in it, and even reading the transcript, you can imagine the jury members' eyes glazing right over. Yet, they would have sat bolt upright, as would all of Australia, if Larry's defence had at that point had the benefit of a decade's foresight. Then Mr Pritchard might have put this question to Colin John Fiske. Are you a prolific pedophile, able to remain free from charge because you are protected by the police for whom you have for many years acted as a trusted informer? Colin John Fisk had not in 1980 been convicted of the horrors that confirmed him as one of Australia's most notorious child rapists. While we don't know when Detective Sergeant John Openshaw's corruption began, we do know that Colin John Fisk was a prolific sex offender by the time he testified in court about Larry Danielson, with his victims dating back to at least the early 1970s. During that decade and the next, Colin Fisk was part of a sickening, pedophile brotherhood, along with soon-to-be-infamous child rapists Robert Dolly Dunn and Philip Bell. These men abused and trafficked underage males and even operated a boy brothel. They got away with it by paying off crooked cops with money that they made from the illegal amphetamine business. During these two decades, Colin Fisk was also relied upon as an informer and a go-between for cops and other criminals. When Colin Fisk was busted on serious drug charges in 1989 and was unable to bribe his way free, he turned whistleblower, claiming he'd long been protected by police who were also involved in drugs as well as fraud, extortion and other financial crimes. Detective Chief Inspector Ken Watson of the Internal Police Security Unit would write in November that year, quote, I am of the opinion that a proactive investigation is required in relation to corruption of members of the New South Wales Police Service in their association with persons involved in the Pedophile Brotherhood. In the years to come, at the Wood Royal Commission into the New South Wales Police Force, Colin Fisk would be a star witness and proceedings would accept much of what he alleged. Colin John Fisk in February 1998 pleaded guilty to 24 charges from his Pedophile Brotherhood period. He was released from prison in May 2009. Colin John Fisk has, in the past few years, been convicted of child rape offences committed after this release. He's now behind bars with another historic charge brought against him last September. For the record, there's nothing to suggest that officers central to the Woolworths bombing's investigation were criminally involved with Colin John Fisk. But it is reasonable to assume they relied on him, as did police across Sydney, as a veteran informer with ties to the criminal underworld. Yet all the jury knew of Colin Fisk was that he was a mate of Larry's who seemed to be testifying against his friend somewhat reluctantly. The jury certainly didn't know that Colin Fisk was someone who'd worked for the police and who boasted to other crooks about his powerful friends. They certainly didn't know him as one of Australia's most vile child sex offenders or anything of the circumstances under which he'd been allowed to commit his crimes. The trial continued, Larry's defence taking a hit when Wendy Gill testified. She was a shop assistant at Fossey's in Nara, and she said that Larry had paid for and taken the blue safari suit on the 12th of December, contradicting his Christmas Eve alibi claim. Wendy Gill was a believable witness and she was sure of this date. Larry's brother Alan Bradford testified that during their reunion in September 1980, Larry had asked him to sell underwater gear through his sporting goods store. Alan had sold two scuba tanks, giving the rest of the equipment back to Larry. From the defence's perspective, the significance of this was that Larry had been selling diving gear before the 15th of October Sea Life Store break in. Why, if he had this equipment, would he have needed to steal from the store to pass the goods to Greg McHarty? Alan Bradford said that he and his family had stayed with Larry in Huskisson for eight days from Boxing Day. Most days, he and his family spent at the beach with Larry, and Greg was often with them. But Alan and his wife Maureen testified that Larry had gone to Sydney twice with Greg during this time. Alan was a little fuzzy on the dates and times, but Maureen was absolutely sure that one of these days had been New Year's Eve, with Larry and Greg gone before the Bradfords awoke and arriving back to Husky at around 7 that night. This was the day that Mr Dunmore had called Woolworths at 4.10pm and given John Hendry more time to get the ransom together. Karen Turner, Greg's girlfriend from Townsville, testified that she'd come to Huskisson for a visit from New Year's Eve. She said she'd last seen Greg when he'd left Queensland in October, and they'd arranged on the phone for her to fly to Sydney and then get a train to Nowra on the 31st of December. But when she'd arrived there, Greg wasn't there to pick her up. People took pity on her and dropped her to Greg's place. Except it wasn't Greg's place. He hadn't told her that he'd moved in with Larry. So Karen met Bob Evans, who gave the poor girl a lift to tumble down dicks. In her time at the house, she met Larry's brother Alan and also Colin Fisk, who popped in for a visit. Karen confirmed that they all spent a lot of time at the beach, and she'd seen Larry's diving equipment on some of these occasions. Karen's testimony about Greg not being there to pick her up on New Year's Eve in Nara went a long way to confirming that, as Robin Horriban had testified, he and Larry hadn't been back in Huskisson until about seven that night. Detective Sergeant Frank Kamer, who'd already testified about the ransom runaround, took the stand again to tell of his part in the search of Larry's house and how he, like so many other police, had heard the Mr. Bridge tapes and identified the voice as belonging to Larry. By the 7th of April 1982, Task Force boss, Detective Sergeant John Anderson, was giving evidence. He corroborated Detective Openshaw's testimony about Greg's interviews. From the Benny story to the story of the $1 million deal he was supposedly negotiating with 20th Century Fox. Regarding the rolls of blue insulation tape found in Larry's house, Detective Sergeant Anderson admitted he hadn't given them to Detective Sergeant Tunstall so he could ask Larry about them and had let Detective Sergeant Barber take them to Sydney for analysis. Detective Sergeant Anderson said in hindsight this might have been an error, but at the time he hadn't attached particular significance to the rolls, thinking they were just more evidence to be processed. However, Detective Sergeant Anderson also acknowledged that when Detective Sergeant Barber had come to the Nara police station with the tape, this scientific squad officer had been delighted with his find. The defence argued this showed that Detective Sergeant Anderson had realised the tape's potential significance. During this part of the trial, Larry made an outburst at one of Justice Muir's rulings, and this disturbance led to a warning to him from the judge in the absence of the jury. When proceedings continued, Mr. Pritchard showed the court police running sheets relating to the town hall bombing. These had been made on the 24th of December, and they contained no record of blue insulation tape being found then in the first floor men's toilets. Mr. Pritchard then made a claim that was struck by Justice Muir and so doesn't appear in the transcript. Judging from the judge's reprimand, Larry's lawyer alleged police had not found the tape offcuts in Woolworths at this time in the manner described. Justice Muir ordered the jury from the court and dressed down Mr. Pritchard for his quote, grossly improper insinuations. The judge said the deficiencies in the police running sheets should be allowed to speak for themselves. Side note, The court later would be shown those police photographs of the blue insulation tape offcuts discovery on the Woolworths' toilet floor. Their omission from the running sheets had been sloppy record-keeping, rather than evidence of some elaborate frame-up. But at this point in the trial, after Mr. Pritchard had been admonished for calling police integrity into question, he said to Justice Muir, as paraphrased in the transcript, quote, There were a number of features of the case which disturbed him. Certain evidence had come forward at the trial, which had not been given in the lower court and which gave rise to feelings of grave disquiet. Mr. Pritchard also said that significant time between the charges and these proceedings was a major issue prejudicial to his client because witnesses' memories were less reliable. He said that he'd like to further address his honour about these concerns when the court next sat after the Easter break adjournment on Wednesday the 14th of April at 10am. That afternoon, Larry Danielson was returned to his cell in Long Bay Jail. Friends who'd visited and written letters in the first few months had by now all deserted him, fearing they'd be caught up in the mess. Greg McHarty that day went back to remand in Parramatta Jail. According to police informants, he wasn't short of company, hanging out with heavy crims who referred to him as Mr Woolworths. The snitches reckoned that Greg had adopted the attitude, Woolworths owes me. At 10am on Easter Sunday, the 10th of April 1982, Greg was seen near the visitor's auditorium inside Parramatta Jail. Though allowed to wear his own clothes, Greg was in prison issue green shorts and a white singlet. As it had been on the day of his arrest, his curly hair was shoulder length and he had a full beard. 90 minutes later, the screws held the midday muster of Parramatta Jail prisoners. Greg didn't turn up. He wasn't in his cell, and he wasn't in any of the corridors, workshops, or any part of the yard. Greg McCarty couldn't be found. Prison authorities called their police brethren and set up a cordon around the jail. Escape, Waters said, was virtually impossible, so Greg had to be somewhere inside Parramatta Jail's sandstone walls. The larrikin was just having a lend. He was hoping his disappearance would embarrass them in the newspapers. Parramatta jail guards and the police told themselves this all Saturday, and all of Sunday. When they did allow themselves to consider the alternative, the only theory they could come up with was that after last being seen, Greg had shaved off his beard and donned street clothes. Then he'd somehow managed to mingle with visitors and just walked out of the prison. Stupidly, the guard shift did change during visiting hours, so warders on the new shift might not have noticed him. By Sunday night, the Sydney Morning Herald had a whiff of what was going on. Prison and police officials still wouldn't admit the obvious, leading to a front-page story the following morning headlined, A Great Escape, or is it? Journalist Malcolm Brown began his story, quote, Where is Gregory Norman McCarty? His article included this, quote, Last night he was missing, but police still couldn't say authoritatively whether he was inside the jail or whether he had escaped. But it was beyond doubt on Monday morning when police linked Greg's disappearance to a nearby carjacking. On Easter Saturday at 10 to 12, a woman had been sitting in her mustard-coloured 1977 Valiant sedan on John Street in Lidcombe. A bloke ripped open the door and pushed her across the seat. She fought back, they struggled, and he wrenched open the passenger side door and hurled her from the vehicle. The woman ran screaming down the street as he burned off in the direction of Parramatta Road. When detectives on Greg McCarty's case learned of this report, they showed the woman his mugshot: Curly hair, bushy beard. Yep, she said, that was the guy. And he'd still been wearing prison shorts and the white singlet. Now the authorities were baffled as to how he'd gotten out. The following day's Sydney Morning Herald headline read, quote, Bomb case man escapes, officially. A big police search would fail to find the car that Greg had stolen from the woman and raids on his known haunts also turned up nothing. Commenting on this, a senior detective said it was very possible the fugitive was already interstate and because he lived in so many places, his network of contacts would make him difficult to trace. Of all the episodes of Forgotten Australia that I've done, the Woolworths bombing is the one that simply screams out for a soundtrack. While we have heard Larry Danielson's songs from the 1970s, his Flicks nightclub hosted so many great Australian bands. Then of course, there are all those fantastic songs from the summer of 1980 and beyond. Of all the musical acts popular at this time though, one in particular stands out as really being in tune with Larry Danielson and Greg McHarty. I'm talking about Cold Chisel, who played Flicks in September 1978 and then in March and September of 1979. Their hit album, East, was released in June of 1980, and it featured several tracks that songwriter Don Walker had penned after the band had played jail gigs and he'd become slightly obsessed with crims and prisons. Songs from the huge-selling and long-charting East were everywhere when Larry and Greg were allegedly planning and carrying out their crimes, and the songs had remained popular during the entire span of their long incarcerations. Standing on the outside... It was about a would-be crim looking for a cash score that would buy him the good life. Four Walls was about life in a jail cell and a prisoner going crazy even though he's only into his second year, just like Larry and Greg were at the time of the trial. Yet by Tuesday the 13th of April 1982, Greg McCarty's life was really, really like a third song from East. The track's called Tomorrow. It's about a bloke in Parramatta Jail who has to make a decision. He's looking at 20 years inside, just as Greg would be if he was convicted. The prisoner in the song risks death to escape, knowing he's going to have to live the rest of his life on the run. When the song starts, it's three days since he's broken free from Parramatta Jail. Newspapers are printing his name, and the cops have him in their sights. Per the title, this anti-hero doesn't want to know about tomorrow. John Walker might as well have written a song about Greg McCarty. Not least because tomorrow, tomorrow at 10 in the morning, the Woolworths bombings trial was set to continue. But the cops and the judge and the lawyers and even Larry Danielson, they could all go to hell because Greg McCarty was gone. Long gone. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part 7 of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The next instalment is on the way and in it we're going to hear about how Greg really escaped and how he ended up right under the noses of the police. If you're a fan of Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could let me know by leaving a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and the Darug people. As always, thanks for listening.